New York, this is Democracy Now! We need concrete action now. We need a humanitarian ceasefire now. We need unimpended delivery of humanitarian assistance now. As calls grow across the globe for a ceasefire in Gaza, we look at the unprecedented toll Israel's bombardment has taken on journalists. More than 50 journalists, almost all Palestinian, have been killed since October 7th. We'll speak to the Committee to Protect Journalists. Then the acclaimed Palestinian poet, Masaba Butoha, has been detained at an Israeli checkpoint in Gaza. His whereabouts unknown. He spoke to Democracy Now! last month. So where do we go? And Netanyahu, on the second day of the escalation, said, ask the Palestinians in Gaza to leave. He said, leave now. But where do we leave? And why should we leave? We, we have nowhere else to go. We'll also speak to Vermont's only Congress member, Democrat Becca Ballant, who's become the first Jewish member of Congress to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Then to Argentina, where the far-right political outsider, Javier Millet, has been elected president. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Palestinian health ministry says all hospitals in northern Gaza are now out of service amidst repeated assaults by Israeli forces on medical centers. The World Health Organization said it was working to evacuate remaining patients from al-Shifa, the largest hospital in the besieged Palestinian territory, along with the Indonesian and al-Ahli hospitals. Hundreds of patients, many of them injured in Israeli strikes, remain trapped in medical centers, which have effectively ceased functioning. A WHO official in Geneva said Israel's assault is, quote, robbing the entire population of the North of the means to seek health care, unquote. There's been no let-up in Israel's bombing campaign. In one of the latest attacks, at least 20 Palestinians were killed when Israeli forces bombed the Nusrat refugee camp in central Gaza. Palestinian officials say more than 13,300 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli strikes, over 5,000 of them children. On Monday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres marked World's Children's Day, the U.N.'s annual day of action for children, with a call to stop the carnage. What is clear is that we have had, in a few weeks, thousands of children killed. So this is what matters. We are witnessing a killing of civilians that is unparalleled and unprecedented in any conflict since I am Secretary General. The chairman of the Gaza press house has been killed by Israel's military. Bilal Jadala was heading to the south of the Gaza Strip when he was killed by an Israeli tank shell in the Zaytun neighborhood of Gaza City. Bilal Jadala was known as the godfather of Palestinian journalism. He helped train generations of reporters and welcomed foreign correspondents to the Gaza Strip. In northern Gaza, 27-year-old digital content and podcast presenter Ayat Qadura has reportedly been killed, along with her family, in an Israeli airstrike. This is one of her last video reports. 
We're separated, of course. I and a few others remain at home while the rest have evacuated, and we don't know where they went. The situation is very scary. The situation is very terrifying. What is happening is very difficult. May God have mercy on us. In southern Lebanon, two journalists with the Beirut-based TV channel El Mayadeen have been killed in an Israeli airstrike. The network says camera operator Rabi al-Mimadi and correspondent Farah Omar were deliberately targeted by an Israeli warplane after reporting on the latest Israeli bombardment of South Lebanon. A third civilian traveling with them was also killed in the attack. At least 50 journalists and media workers, most of them Palestinian, have been killed in the region since October 7th. We'll have more on this story after headlines. The Palestinian poet and author Mossaba Butoha has been arrested by Israeli soldiers while trying to leave the Gaza Strip with his family. Abu Toha had been heading to the southern Rafah boarding crossing when he was abducted at an Israeli military checkpoint on November 18th. His family has not heard from him since. Masab Abu Toha is an author, a columnist, a teacher and founder of the Edward Said Library in Gaza. To see our recent interview with him, visit our website at democracynow.org. We'll have more on his disappearance later in the broadcast. In Jerusalem, far-right members of Israel's parliament Monday got into a shouting match with family members of hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza. Lawmakers were debating a bill to impose the death penalty on, quote, terrorists. The bill was advanced by Israel's ultra-nationalist national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who was convicted of racist incitement against Palestinians and supporting a terrorist group convicted in an Israeli court. Family members condemned the death penalty bill, saying it endangered efforts to win the release of their abducted relatives. This is Udi Koren, whose cousin is being held captive in Gaza. This is incredibly disappointing because I feel that at this point, when we know that taking down Hamas, we keep hearing from them, is going to take months or years, and it's going to take a long time. On the other hand, the other objective is time-sensitive. People are dying. We know that for sure. One hostage family member yelled at Ben Gavir in the Knesset session, you kill, care more about killing Arabs than saving Jewish lives. Meanwhile, Al Jazeera reports Qatar brokered talks for a deal that would see Hamas release some of its hostages in exchange for a three- to five-day pause in fighting are at a critical and final stage. Hamas officials said they were, quote, close to reaching a truce agreement. The White House has pushed back after the Center for Constitutional Rights sued President Biden, accusing him of failing to prevent genocide in the Gaza Strip. On Monday, White House spokesperson John Kirby called the allegations, quote, pretty inappropriate. He said only Hamas has genocidal intentions, not Israel's government. Yes, there are too many civilian casualties in Gaza. Yes, the numbers are too high. Yes, fam too many families are grieving. And yes, we continue to urge the Israelis to be as careful and cautious as possible. That's not going to stop from the president right on down. But Israel is not trying to wipe the Palestinian people off the map. Israel's not trying to wipe Gaza off the map. Israel's trying to defend itself against a genocidal terrorist threat. 
Those remarks from the White House came as Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon became just the second senator to demand a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip, joining Illinois Democrat Dick Durbin. Merkley wrote, quote, by waging a war that generates a shocking level of civilian carnage rather than a targeted campaign against Hamas, Israel's burning through its reserves of international support. Too many civilians and too many children have died, and we must value each and every child equally, whether they are Israeli or Palestinian, Merkley wrote. In Seattle, hundreds of people blocked the main entrance to the Space Needle Observation Tower Sunday in a Jewish-led peaceful act of civil disobedience calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Protesters flew a 40-foot-tall banner that read, Cease Fire Now, on the air, buoyed by large balloons. They're demanding Washington Senators Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell, both Democrats, join growing congressional calls for a ceasefire. The action was organized by the Seattle chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. A federal appeals panel has blocked individuals and civil rights groups, such as the NAACP, from suing to enforce the Voting Rights Act, granting that authority solely to the U.S. government. Voting rights advocates warned Monday's two-to-one decision by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals could further erode the landmark 1965 law, weakening provisions that protect black and other voters of color from racial discrimination. The majority decision was written by Judge David Strauss, who was appointed by Donald Trump. The ruling stems from a gerrymandering case in Arkansas in which the state chapter of the NAACP accused Arkansas of restricting voting access to black citizens. Sophia Lynn Lacken, director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, who argued the case, slammed the decision as a travesty for democracy, saying the ruling, quote, has put the Voting Rights Act in jeopardy, tossing aside critical protections that voters fought and died for, she said. The ruling's expected to be challenged and could head to the U.S. Supreme Court. In Ohio, four people were injured and left hospitalized Monday evening after a man walked into a Walmart in the city of Beaver Creek and opened fire with an assault rifle. Police say the shooter then died of apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. It's the same Walmart store where, in 2014, a 22-year-old African-American man named John Crawford III was shot and killed by a police officer after a caller phoned 911 to accuse him of brandishing a gun and pointing at other customers. In fact, Crawford had picked up an unloaded BB air rifle on a shelf. The white police officer who fatally shot John Crawford was acquitted by an Ohio grand jury. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been over 600 mass shootings across the United States so far this year, a record pace. In Sweden, labor unions are continuing their blockade against Tesla in response to Elon Musk's electric car manufacturer's refusal to sign a collective bargaining agreement for higher wages and better working conditions with its mechanics. Dock workers at dozens of Swedish ports have refused to unload Tesla cars from ships. Meanwhile, electricians stopped repair work at Tesla's charging stations. Swedish postal workers have also joined the strike, halting the delivery and collection of mail at all Tesla sites in Sweden. The strike began in late October, impacting at least 12 Tesla service centers in Sweden. This comes as the United Auto Workers Union looks to organize Tesla plants here in the United States following their successful strike against the big three U.S. automakers. 
And in Nairobi, Kenya, delegates from several fossil fuel-producing countries backed by a network of plastics industry trade groups have stalled talks on the global treaty to curb plastic waste. Representatives from around 150 countries to the U.N. brokered talks failed to reach an agreement after countries, including Saudi Arabia and Russia, pushed for more plastic recycling rather than limits to plastic production. This is Graham Forbes, head of Greenpeace's delegation in Nairobi. The reality is that we've only recycled about 9% of the plastic that's ever been produced. We cannot recycle our way out of this problem. And so what Greenpeace is calling for is cutting plastic production and accelerating a reuse-based economy. We expect the negotiations to finance, create standards, and accelerate reuse at a global scale. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. It's been another devastating 24 hours in Gaza and southern Lebanon for journalists covering the 46-day Israeli bombardment. The Beirut-based TV channel El Meadin has just announced two of its journalists were killed today in an Israeli airstrike in southern Lebanon. The network says correspondent Farah Omar and camera operator Rabi al-Mamadi were deliberately targeted by an Israeli warplane after reporting on Israel's latest bombardment of south Lebanon. Meanwhile, in northern Gaza, Ayat Khadura, a 27-year-old digital content and podcast presenter, has been reportedly killed along with her family in an Israeli airstrike. This is Ayat, one of her last video reports. This may be the last video for me. Today, the occupation dropped phosphorus bombs on the Beit Lahia project area and scary sound bombs and threw evacuation notices in the area. And of course, almost the entire area has evacuated. Everyone started running madly in the streets. No one knows neither where they're going to or coming from. We're separated, of course. I and a few others remain at home while the rest have evacuated. And we don't know where they went. The situation is very scary. The situation is very terrifying. What is happening is very difficult. May God have mercy on us. On Sunday, the head of the Gaza press house was also killed by the Israeli military. Bilal Jadala was heading to southern Gaza when he was killed by an Israeli tank shell in the Zaytun neighborhood of Gaza City. Bilal was known as the godfather of Palestinian journalism. He helped train generations of reporters and welcomed foreign correspondents and sponsored them when covering the Gaza Strip. The Committee to Protect Journalists Monday announced a grim milestone had been reached with at least 50 journalists and media workers killed since October 7th. Forty-five of the journalists have been Palestinian. There have been three Israeli journalists killed, and there have been at least three uh, Lebanese journalists killed. CPJ reports um, 11 journalists have been injured, three are reported missing, and 18 have been arrested. According to CPJ, the past month and a half has been the deadliest period of journalists covering the conflict since the media group began tracking these deaths over 30 years ago. We go now to Philadelphia, where we're joined by Sharif Mansour, the Middle East and North Africa program correct, uh, coordinator for the Committee to Protect Journalists. 
Uh, Sharif, welcome back to Democracy Now! Under horrific circumstances, the U.N. Secretary General says that the number of civilian deaths is unparalleled and unprecedented. Of course, journalists are civilians. Um, as I woke up this morning, I got one text after another. First, the young woman and her cameraman in southern Lebanon killed about an hour after she posted a video report. She's standing uh, in a field in southern Lebanon, and she's talking about the Israeli military killing civilians. She and her cameraman are then hit and killed. And then, as I'm learning their names, another text comes in. This young reporter in northern Gaza is killed, even as she says in her report, I fear I will die. Can you talk about this latest news? And then a man you have come to know who worked with you on a CPJ report, the head of the Gaza Journalists Association, also killed in an airstrike. Thank you, Amy, for having me. I remember being on your show a little bit more of a month ago and saying for journalists in the region, this is the deadly time. And it was the deadliest week back then. It became the deadliest months and now the deadliest six weeks on our record. I was not exaggerating. I was not speculating. The killing of Bilal Jadallah, who helped us document this deadly pattern of journalists being killed by Israeli fire over 21 years. Just in May, we made a profile of 20 journalists, majority 18 were Palestinians, and he, Jadallah, his center, have helped identify them, their families, get us their pictures. And on Sunday, he became a victim of this same deadly pattern when he was killed in his car. Jadallah have also provided crucial safety equipment uh, for journalists in order to do their job safely. And he opened the press house for journalists to use electricity and internet when there was no other place. This deadly pattern has existed before. It's getting more deadly per day. We are investigating the three more killing today, adding to 50 as of yesterday. We've never seen anything like this. It's unprecedented. And for journalists in Gaza specifically, the exponential risk is probably the most dangerous we have seen. Journalists were killed in the very early stages at the two entry and exit points from Gaza. In the south, the Rafah crossing. In the north, the Aries crossing. And since then, they were killed everywhere in between. They were killed in the south, in Rafah city, in Khan Yunis, where they were told it's going to be safe. They were killed in the middle, in the Gaza Strip, and they were killed in the north, in Gaza city. They have no safe haven. They have no exit. Uh, Sharif, could you talk as well about the arrests of journalists in, in Gaza and the occupied territories? And also your organization has criticized as well Israel for its censorship within Israel of the press in Israel. Could you talk about that as well? 
We have documented separately from the casualties list, which include journalists going missing, uh, missing, injured, the escalation of arrests. As of yesterday, 18 Palestinian journalists from the West Bank were arrested. Many of them were put in administrative detention in military prosecutions. In addition, uh, dozens of cases of censorship, direct censorship, cyber attacks, uh, physical assaults, obstruction from coverage within the West Bank and within Israel. In Israel, an emergency legislation has now gained given the government for the first time the unprecedented power of shutting down international media organization, including acting on Al-Miadin, which two of journalists were killed today in Lebanon, banning them in Israel, and allowing the government also to jail even Israeli journalists uh, for up to a year under suspicious and these accusations of harming national morale and harming national security. Also, here in the United States, we are getting uh, much coverage on the commercial media uh, of the war, uh, of the Israeli war uh, in Gaza. But it's all of U.S. journalists that are basically based in Israel. uh, And uh, there are no U.S. journalists that I've seen that are actually in uh, uh, Gaza. And those who do go in only go in with the Israeli army and under the condition that Israel can must review all of their videotape beforehand and approve it before it can go out. I'm wondering your sense of what how the American people, what kind of story they're getting as a result of these conditions. Well, these conditions put local Palestinian photojournalists and freelancers at the most risk. They are the ones on the front lines. We have not, uh, we have seen a dwindling number of international media and international journalists within Gaza over the years because of the risks involved. And right now, the Palestinian journalists are bearing the brunt of this risk and this heavy toll. Of course, these casualties, the censorship is also coupled with communication blackouts for to date since the start of the war that makes this more of a news blackout, not just communication blackout. And of course, that denies journalists uh, a voice. It also denies people in the region and worldwide of essential media coverage. Life-saving information for two million Palestinians who are struggling to find food, clean water, and shelter right now. But millions and hundreds of millions all over the world who are following this heartbreaking conflict and try to understand it, including in the U.S. So, as Juan said, Sharif, you have the Israeli military says they cannot guarantee the lives of journalists that go into Gaza. Um, in early November, I'm just thinking back to a few weeks ago, the Palestine News Agency reported that their journalist, Mohammed Abu Hattab, was killed in an Israeli strike on his home in southern Gaza Strip, along with 11 members of his family, including his wife, son and brother. His colleague, journalist Salman al-Bashir, burst into tears during a live broadcast upon learning of Abu Hattab's killing. As he spoke, al-Bashir tore off his helmet and protective vest labeled press and threw them to the ground. Uh, 
And then there was a split screen as he ripped off his gear, saying, why do we bother wearing this if we're going to be killed anyway? Uh, they showed the anchor uh, back in the Palestine News studio um, as she wept as al-Bashir tore off his helmet and protective vest. Your response to this situation and this whole issue of embedded journalism is the only way the U.S. media can get those reports inside Gaza, where their news reports are reviewed, um, and the Gazan journalists on the ground being killed one after another, dozens of Palestinian journalists killed. Well, the Israeli army cannot escape or evade their responsibility under international law not to use unwarranted lethal force against journalists and against media facilities. It would constitute a possible war crime to do so. We have raised directly with Israeli officials the need for them to reform the rules of engagement, to respect press insignia, and to ensure there are safeguards, checks, when civilians and journalists are around. We have called for Israeli allies, including the U.S. government, European allies, to raise directly these issues and publicly with their Israeli counterparts. And we have called for the U.N. Security Council to include safety of journalists on the agenda in any diplomatic discussion. Of course, the Israeli government are obliged under international law to protect journalists as civilians, but it's also journalists' vital role in time of war, providing accurate, timely, independent information that gives them these protections under international law. And we want to make sure that the Israeli army as well do not continue to push false narratives and smear campaigns to try and justify the killing of those journalists. Sharif Mansour, we want to thank you for being with us, Middle East and North Africa Program Coordinator for the Committee to Protect Journalists, speaking to us from Philadelphia. Coming up, the acclaimed Palestinian poet Masab Abu Toha has been detained at an Israeli checkpoint in Gaza, his whereabouts now unknown. Back in 20 seconds. I was in the studio chopping up samples, electricity's off. We sleep with the candles, sleep with our sandals, and leave the doors open because when bombs drop, there's no time to grab the handles. Write our names on our hands just to identify when somebody's face is off. It makes them hard to recognize. Been through so many wars, I forgot to mention. I can calculate the distance of the airplane engine. You think you're from the trenches? Not ease the trenches. Cause close the eyes and cover the ears, they block these senses. This war is senseless. They treat us like animals. I'm let it rain by the young Gazan rapper MC Abdul. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Calls are growing across the globe for Israel to immediately release the acclaimed Palestinian poet and author Mossab Abu Toha, who was detained at an Israeli military checkpoint in Gaza this weekend while heading toward the Rafah border crossing with his family. His whereabouts are unknown. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Progressive, and other publications. He founded the Edward Said Library in Gaza. His first book of poetry, 
Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear, won the American Book Award and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. The poetry collection was published by City Lights Books. In a recent essay in The New Yorker magazine, Abu Toha wrote, I sit in my temporary house in the Jabalia camp waiting for a ceasefire. I feel like I'm in a cage. I'm being killed every day with my people. The only two things I can do are panic and breathe. There is no hope here, he wrote. Mossab Abu Toha appeared on Democracy Now! a few weeks ago. I mean, where, where do we immigrate? We have been, we, we, we were born on this land. My, my parents were born in, on this land. My grandparents were born on this land. My great-grandparents were born here. But if you ask anyone in Israel, they would, most of them would tell you that their grandparents were, were born somewhere else. And even, I, I, I only have a Palestinian passport, which is really not very helpful when I leave Gaza, if, if I could leave Gaza. So where do we go? And Netanyahu, on the second day of the escalation, said, ask the Palestinians in Gaza to leave. He said, leave now. But where do we leave? And why should we leave? We, we have nowhere else to go. Those the words of the Palestinian poet Mossab Abu Toha on Democracy Now! in October. His whereabouts are now unknown after he was taken by Israeli forces at a checkpoint in Gaza. We're joined now by Diana Butu. She is a Palestinian lawyer, former advisor to the negotiating team of the Palestine Liberation Organization, broke the news of Mossab Abu Toha's kidnapping. She joins us now from Haifa. Uh, Diana, can you talk about what you understand has happened to him? Mossab's story is like that of so many Palestinians in Gaza. Um, he was seeking refuge in the Jabalia refugee camp. His own home was bombed and, and shattered to pieces. While he was in Jabalia refugee camp, the Israelis perpetrated a massacre in Jabalia, which was 70 meters away from where he was. He twice escaped death. And uh, his son is an American-born citizen. They, along with the rest of the family, finally got clearance to be able to leave Rafah, to go elsewhere. And as they were fleeing from the heavily bombed uh, north of northern part of the Gaza Strip, they were forced to go through a checkpoint, what was supposed to be a safe passage on Salah al-Din Road, which is the road that leads from the north to the south. At that checkpoint, at that military area, he, along with hundreds of other people, were forced to raise their hands. He was forced to put his son down on the ground, his young son, three years old, raise his hands in the air. And he and hundreds of others, men and women, this has been confirmed by his wife, were then abducted. They weren't arrested. They were abducted, kidnapped by the Israeli army with everybody else told to continue on. His family is not in Rafah. They are still trying to get to the south. It is near impossible to get to the south. And his family still has not heard from him. They have no idea of his whereabouts. We've checked everywhere with the ICRC, with representatives of Congress with the State Department, and nobody has been able to provide us with even the simplest of answers in terms of where he is, why he's been uh, abducted, what conditions he's being held under, and when it is that he will be released. And this is why so many are pushing and demanding not only for Mossab's release, but for the release of the hundreds of Palestinians that Israel has abducted over the course of the past seven weeks. 
Uh, I'm wondering, uh, you've commented in the past on the extent to which Israel has been disseminating false information about the war. Could you elaborate on what's been the effects of that? Well, the effect has been that we now see that that commercial media are looking and examining the the tiny little minutia of disinformation that Israel is putting out, but they seem to ignore the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that Israel is bombing of a 2.2 million populated uh, refugee camp. Half of them are our children. And uh, and we just keep hearing one piece of disinformation after another. We've heard them talk about the legality of bombing hospitals when anybody who has uh, who has any sense of morality or notion of what's legal, what's right, knows that you can't bomb a hospital. And yet, um, rather than questioning that, we've seen instead that commercial media have been going down the path of simply accepting these truths. We see this also when it's come to Musab, that there's somehow an allegation that he has done something wrong, rather than people recognizing that this has been a pattern that Israel has been carrying out now for quite some time, for the past seven weeks. It's been going into Gaza, it's been abducting people, and without anybody knowing where their whereabouts are. Um, we've heard, we've seen this happen with Palestinian workers who happened, who had permits to be inside Israel, who were then not only abducted, but beaten with their with their torture uh, broadcast and put up on TikTok and on Instagram. And of course, nobody even questioning uh, the legality, the morality of doing any of those sorts of things. So the problem has been that they've gone down the path of, of somehow accepting the disinformation rather than questioning it and rather than questioning this big picture of Israel, of the legality of Israel bombing a large refugee camp. The only reason that they're refugees is because Israel made them into refugees in the first place. Can you explain more about how you're trying to get information and attention to Mossab's case right now? I mean, word is that the Israel and uh, Hamas are close to a hostage release agreement. Um, does this fit into that? Uh, why is it so difficult to deal with Israel and Palestine right now? How are you able to communicate with both? In terms of communication, communication is near impossible, and it's near impossible because the Israelis, a uh, little over two weeks ago, imposed a blackout on telecommunications inside the Gaza Strip. And not only was there a blackout imposed, but it's also been impossible for roaming to be working. So um, of the times that I'm able to reach friends uh, very dear friends who are in the Gaza Strip, it usually takes about the entire day to reach one or two friends. Communication is near impossible. And uh, and so in terms of getting the story of, of Musab out, it's been really just uh, trying to connect with his family, in particular his wife, getting information and then trying to spread it as wide as possible to friends who, people who know him, who've worked with him, his publisher, the people who have published him in the past, not just his uh, book publisher, but others, and trying to get that information going so that people recognize that it isn't just the story of Musab, but it's the story of, of thousands of other Palestinians as well, and indeed millions of Palestinians who are now trapped inside the Gaza Strip. 
it has become near impossible, Amy, to reach people in Gaza, and it's become near impossible for them to even be able to reach the most basic things like uh, to contact an ambulance for if once there is an Israeli bomb, to be able to contact people to remove the rubble, to be able to get to the hospital. All of this has been done under the cover of darkness and uh, the fact and, and yet at the same time, we're watching this live and the fact that nobody is doing anything about it um, speaks volumes. I want to go back to Masab Abutoha speaking on Democracy Now! just a few weeks ago. Last night, my, my son, who is three years old, was sleeping, and there, there was that bombing uh, in the area. And he woke up and he said, who did that? And he said, let it stop. I mean, that was the first time he was asking me to do that, as if I was responsible for the bombing. So I have, I have nothing to do as a father. I have nothing to do as a neighbor or as a son. We are helpless here. We have been helpless all our lives. While the United States, unfortunately, is always stepping in to support Israel. The words of the Palestinian poet and author Mossab Abu Toha speaking on Democracy Now! a few weeks ago. To see the whole interview, go to democracynow.org. I also want to thank Diana Butu, Palestinian lawyer, former advisor to the negotiating team of the Palestine Liberation Organization, speaking to us from Haifa. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to the growing calls for a ceasefire in Gaza, coming from lawmakers in Washington. On Monday, Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon became the second senator to demand a ceasefire, joining Dick Durbin of Illinois. According to one count, 42 members of Congress have now called for a ceasefire or cessation of hostilities in Israel and occupied Palestine. We're joined now by Democratic Congress member Becca Ballant of Vermont. Last week, she became the first Jewish member of Congress to call for a ceasefire. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Congressmember Ballant. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Talk about why you've made this decision. Um, your senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, is not there yet. But you are. Talk about why. So I want to be really clear, Amy, with, with folks who are, are listening and, and watching that I wrote the op-ed um, to express to Vermonters, it was really geared towards my constituents. And uh, I should have anticipated that it might get uh, national attention, but I, I actually didn't. Uh, so I, I wrote it for Vermonters. And what I wanted to do was really give voice to all the things that I'd been feeling and thinking and wrestling with uh, since the beginning of October and wanted to articulate clearly for Vermonters what I thought needed to happen. So you know, wanted to just lay it out there. The horrific violence has to stop. Hostages must be released. We have to end the suffering in Gaza. Palestinians and Israelis both deserve safety and security. And, and now more than ever, I believe that we need a true negotiated ceasefire to get to uh, a two-state solution. And as you, as you mentioned, um, my, uh, both my senators here in Vermont have, have not yet made the call. But I know in my conversations with them that we we actually want the same things. Where we differ is just in the strategy that is needed to get us there. But we all want to find a way to stop the violence, to stop the bombing. Uh, we don't want to continue to see innocent civilians, including so many children and babies, die. And 
um, I just felt that it was really important for me to articulate clearly for Vermonters um, all of the complexity I was holding. And I honestly, when we released the op-ed, I was very focused on how my constituents would feel about what I said. And I didn't anticipate that I was uh, the first Jewish member of Congress uh, to call specifically for a negotiated ceasefire, because I know we've been saying a lot of the same things for weeks. So um, what I do know is there are no exact words right now that will um, sum up the totality of what we are all thinking and feeling about this situation. But I do know that we have complete agreement on an immediate cessation of hostilities, pausing the violence, ending the suffering, and trying to get to a negotiated ceasefire that will hold. And Representative, you, you said that you and uh, Representative Rashid Talib have been brought together by your people suffering and are now friends. Could you talk about the vitriol directed toward her as the only Palestinian yeah. congresswoman? Yes, I really appreciate the question. It's disgusting. The Islamophobia right now is completely and totally um, out of control. And I was disgusted by the fact that um, colleagues are, are trying to go after the one Palestinian American member of Congress. And, and as I said, you know, Rashida and I became friends early on in my tenure. We were brought together, I think, by um, we, we both have big hearts and, um, she's known a little bit like a mama bear in, in the caucus. She, um, is very, uh, loving and gentle towards, um, you know, specifically new members, like making sure we have what we need. And I was really drawn to her because we are, as I said, two people that have people, you know, within our family that have endured suffering over a very long time. We're both parents to teenagers and, and we share uh, the struggles of that. And and actually, um, I don't think it's betraying a trust to say, um, you know, she sent me uh, a message last week saying uh, what she hopes is that in the future, she and I will be able to uh, walk together in, um, you know, in, in a, a, a true democratic Palestine and and in Israel, both of us together as friends, as people who understand uh, the horrific suffering that is going on right now. And um, I have really tried to use my platform and will continue to do so to stand up against the Islamophobia and also the anti-Semitism. And, and we've discussed this as well, that you can be critical of Israel, and you should be critical of Israel and Netanyahu and the policies. And I've never shied away from that. And I also am very uncomfortable in this moment by some of the, the outrageous uh, anti-Semitism hurled at Jewish members of Congress, specifically progressive Jewish members of Congress who are trying to do the right thing and figuring out uh, the correct strategy going forward. But, you know, Rashida will always be um, what I call one of my heart people. Well, on the day after Rashida Tlaib was censured uh, by the House of Representatives, um, we brought on Marion Ingram, 87-year-old Holocaust survivor, uh, protesting out the, outside the White House, uh, calling for a ceasefire. And she condemned the censure of your yes. colleague, um, Senator Tlaib. I want to thank you very much, Democratic Congress member Becca Ballant of Vermont. Uh, she is the first openly LGBTQ 
LGBTQ member to represent uh, Congress, to represent Vermont in Congress, the first Congresswoman to represent Vermont, and now the first Jewish member of Congress to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. We'll link to her op-ed in the Vermont Digger, headlined, Ceasefire Needed to Stop Bloodshed in Israel-Hamas Conflict. Coming up, we go to Argentina, where the far-right political outsider, Javier Millet, has been elected president. He's called the Trump of Argentina. The first to congratulate him was President Trump and the former Brazilian president, Bolsonaro, back in 20 seconds. Búsquenme donde se esconde el sol Donde exista una canción Búsquenme a orillas del mar Besando la espuma y la sal País de la Libertad, in a country of liberty, by the Argentine Leon Gieco, who signed a letter protesting Millet's erasure of the horrors of Argentina's 1976 to 1983 right-wing dictatorship that killed over 30,000 Argentinians. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show in Argentina, where the far-right libertarian Javier Millet has been elected president. He's been compared to Donald Trump and Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, who he won Sunday's election with 56 percent of the vote, defeating the centrist Peronist candidate Sergio Massa. Millet is a climate crisis denier who has proposed banning abortion, easing restrictions on guns, vowing to shut down Argentina's central bank, replacing the nation's currency with the U.S. dollar. Millet has also questioned the death toll and crimes committed by the Argentine military dictatorship from 1976 to 83. He spoke from Buenos Aires Sunday night. La situación de Argentina es crítica. Argentina's situation is critical. The changes our country needs are drastic. There's no room for gradualism. There's no room for tepidity. There's no room for half measures. We go now to Buenos Aires, Argentina, where we're joined by two guests. Franco Mataza is director of international relations for the Argentine Senate of the Republic. And we're going to begin with you. Um, can you talk about the significance of this victory? I mean, months ago, um, Millet was hardly known to the general population of Argentina, became famous as he carried a, um, 
chainsaw with him um, and uh, would use it during uh, his speeches. Talk about the significance of that and what he represents. Hi, Amy. Very pleased to to greet you. Well, what Millet implies for Argentina today is uncertainty. He got to win the election with some promises. You mentioned one of them, and the main one is the dollarization, to change our current currency for the U.S. dollar. So he made great expectations in the population. People want to earn his salary, their salary in dollars in the next month. And that would be impossible. So what is one of the main issues? The uncertainty and the expectations for the U.S. dollar. And the other thing that I, I, I want to underline is the human rights. We are in a country that has... Uh, very deep history for the dictatorship we had. It was one of the most uh, terrific ones in the region, and we could go over them and and make justice for the victims. And the genocides are in jail now, and he wants to take them out of jail. So those are the main issues we are experiencing these days here. And uh, Franco Metasa, could you talk about wh- why the incumbent uh, Peronist coalition, a center-left coalition, lost this election? Uh, what factors do you think contributed to that? Uh, and also, uh, how you expect that Malay will be able to govern since he doesn't have a majority in the legislature? Well, I think we lost because of the inflation. When one analyzes all the elections in Argentina, they always have has to do with the economy. And we have a very high inflation. What did cause that inflation? Well, it began with, when the IMF gave us, not, not us, but the right-wing government of Mauricio Macri, the biggest loan in the history of IMF. They gave us 45 million billion dollars. And that's even three times the amount they are given to Ukraine to recover from the war. And we were not in a war. Even the pandemic hasn't happened then. It was a political loan. And that make us ha- that make our country to pay a lot of money per month. And that uh, is uh, extremely difficult for our economy. So we lost because of the inflation caused by the IMF. And the second question you made is very interesting because he doesn't have majority, but he has a, a political association with Mauricio Macri. Uh, so they will they will get more senates and more uh, representatives than they have today. And that's very important because he got to win the election saying that he was the new, that he came up with uh, new people, not the old politicians, not the traditional elite. And finally, he, he, will, he will be part of this elite. 
he he says he said today who is going to be his ministry of economy and it was the same ministry of economy of our former president fernando de la rua who ended with the crisis of 2001 that you might remember and it was the same president of the central bank of mauricio macri the, the previous right wing government that lost the elections with us in 2019. I want to bring Veronica Gago into this conversation, feminist activist, researcher at the Public National Council of Research in Argentina, author of Feminist International, How to Change Everything. Can you talk about uh, who the man who will be the new president, Millet's discourse during his campaign against feminism, um, against the LGBTQ community, now demanding an abortion ban in Argentina. Talk about it all. Yes. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me. Uh, yes, I want to, to remark that Millet presents himself as a novelty, but he can't uh, get rid of, of the past, of the dictatorship and neoliberal agenda of the 90s. So I, I think that this is a very important point. Millet is an opponent of abortion rights. During the campaign, he said he was going to call for a referendum to overturn the legalization of abortion uh, that we achieved in 2020 during the pandemic. There is a debate whether that it is possible or not, besides needing an act of Congress to call it and for the result to be binding, there is no agreement that it can be held. What is clear is that he, uh, he aims to take away the legitimacy of the right to abortion. And it is also linked to the fact that abortion, abortions in Argentina are performed free of church in public health institutions that Millet wants to privatize. Also, it is linked to his plan to ban sex education in schools, as he considers this to be propaganda for cultural Marxism and gender ideology. Again, this is a proposal against public education that he wants also to privatize. Uh, Argentina, you know, is a pioneer in the promotion of LGBTQ rights, especially in Latin America. In 2010, the country has being the first in the region to legalize equal marriage. A crucial action was also the enactment of gender identity law in 2012, which allowed people to change their gender on official documents based on self-determination. Millet speaks of these rights as privileges and has spoken out against the law that endures a job quota for trans people in the state achieved in 2021. He speaks of LGBTQ lobby, which along with the climate movement and the abortion rights, uh, he uh, talked about a, a sort of socialist agenda. And he has already said he will close the Ministry of Women, Gender and Diversity. So he uh, has uh, signaled the feminist and queer movement as a main and also it is very linked with uh, the human rights movement that uh, Franco was uh, talking uh, about. So I, I think that is, uh, well, 
a very dark scenario for grassroots movement, for feminist organizations. But I think also that Argentina is uh, uh, a country with a very strong history of resistance, a very strong history of uh, massive demonstrations. And I think that uh, we will uh, confront this uh, political program. And Veronica Gago, could you talk as well about the Malay's stance on uh, uh, firearms uh, in the country and also his stance on climate change? Yes, he, he proposes to reduce gun restrictions. Uh, he argues that countries like the United States that have no restrictions have much less crime. Uh, this is demonstrably not true. However, it is part of making security a private matter for armed men, I think. He wants to capitalize on citizen concern about insecurity. As Franco was saying, the, the inflation is our main uh, problem nowadays. And of course, the feeling of insecurity that that kind of inflation is producing in uh, your daily life is respond with this idea of uh, guns and uh, security in very sexist, racist uh, terms. So the, the other things that uh, you were saying, he's uh, a denialist of climate crisis. The climate crisis is, he says, a product of uh, Marxist ideas. He dismisses climate change as a socialist lie, and uh, he rejects everything that comes from that idea. Millet has an idea of extreme deregulation of markets, and that includes the necessity to deny climate change and its consequences. And finally, uh, the issue of the dirty war and his questioning of the number of people who died during the dictatorship from 76 to 83, Veronica. Yes, this is a uh, completely uh, uh, important issue because his vice president, Victoria Bicharuel, is a denialist of state terrorism. She would wash genocide and also demanded the restoration of compulsory, compulsory military service. She's a defender of the military accused of crimes against humanity during the dictatorship. And in doing so, both, uh, has attacked, they, they have attacked the popular consensus of human rights struggles led by the mothers and grandmothers of Plaza de Mayo, who mobilized for those disappears during the dictatorship um, and whose ongoing resistance is part of also feminist uh, movement. So I think that uh, this is part of our uh, becoming uh, struggles. We want to thank you both for being with us. Veronica Gago is feminist activist, researcher at the Public National Council of Research in Argentina, author of Feminist International, How to Change Everything, and Franco Mataza, director of international relations for the Argentine Senate of the Republic, both speaking to us from Buenos Aires. Um, we'll be doing a Spanish post show and posting it on our Spanish website. Um, you can check it out there. Go to democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Dina Gesder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Terasena, Tammy Warrenup, Trina Nadira, Sam Alcofte, Maria Studio, John Hamilton, Ravi Karen, Hani Masood, Sanji Lopez, I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.